Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Spurscast, episode 584. My name is Paul Garcia, and I'm your host here at the Spurscast. Today I'll be joined by Project Spurs writer Colin Reed. In this episode, Colin and I will be discussing the Spurs' play in the bubble and look at the offseason situation for the team. Let's get started. Colin, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty happy with how successful the uh, the bubble has been at keeping coronavirus out and stuff. I'm pretty happy to just be watching basketball, and so far there's no incidents of uh, basketball maybe being shut down so i've been i've been enjoying the past couple weeks awesome yeah same here i mean it's, it's been fun to watch basketball again you know the spurs obviously you know, we're going to talk about how, how they're out of the the bubble but it's still good it's still fun to see the the uh, playoffs coming kicking up pretty much this next week and then also this play-in game between the grizzlies and the, uh, the, the the blazers so so we'll see what happens there so yeah it was an exciting i mean just even wrapping up the season with that whole chase from from like the suns and the spurs and um, all those teams. It was fun to watch them, you know, be competing for that for that for a chance at that playing game. All right, so we have us, uh, like I said, Spurs cast listeners. We have a lot to go through today. It's gonna be a little bit longer episode. We have uh, not only to close out the season, but then Colin and I are actually going to start going into some of the off season aspects of for the Spurs and what the timeline looks when in terms of the draft, in terms of free agency, and we'll go through all that in detail. So make sure you stick around all the way to the end because we're going to really cover a lot here, um, especially if you're interested in the off season with free agency trades, all those kind of things. All right, so let's go ahead and close out the season, Colin. Um, the Spurs finished the bubble uh, better than expected. Five and three was their record. Now that last game, you know, they probably could have won it had they played all their players, but they kind of once they knew they were out of the playoff race, they, they kind of just um, rested a lot of their core guys like DeRozan, Derek White, Rudy Gay, etc. Um, so what happened? The Spurs made it all the way to the final day where they needed not only to win, but they needed two of Portland, Phoenix, and. Uh, Memphis to, to to get into the playoffs. They needed two of those teams to fall in order for the Spurs to, to get either the eight or nine seed, but it didn't happen. Um, you know, pretty much by the fourth quarter, the Grizzlies up, were up by twenty, the Suns were up by twenty, and the Spurs hadn't even taken the court yet. So they really, you know, by the end of the fourth, it was pretty much over. Uh, they didn't have much to play for, so so I mean, yeah, because it was they, they knew their fate; it was over. They were eliminated from the playoffs. So so we saw that they changed their lineups where Coach Pop rested DeRozan, Derek White, Rudy Gay, uh, and then and then a lot of their other players. So um, they ended up losing that final game to the Jazz. But like I mentioned, it was a lot of the young guys playing, like Lucas Simonic, Chemezi Metu. Even though Keldon had a good game, um, you know, getting to start. Um, Pop, uh, this pretty much got, goes back to what Pop mentioned, which was that Sixers game. That's where you really feel like if if you go back now, it's crazy how how it was a long season. Um, and, and out of all the moments this season, it's you're going to go back to that one moment in that Sixers game where um, where they double teamed uh, Dejounte Murray double teamed on, on Joel Embiid and, and left Shake Milton open for three. And that's something that Coach Pop talked about before the Houston game, where he was basically saying that if they got into the playoffs, it would be icing on the cake because you know it, it, just the the, the the kind of growth that this team made and, and the kind of push they made. But he knows that that was probably the moment 
where, where it, he let uh, it let the, the season got away from them. Uh, and then also, of course, that which has been on Twitter a lot is is how uh, the 22 year streak is officially over. Uh, the Spurs, you know, made their fr- made started the streak back when Tim Duncan joined the team in 1997-98, his rookie season, and, and it stayed all the way until 2020. Uh, so, like, if you're if you're younger than 22 uh, years old, you're gonna you're gonna have your first um, um, season now without the Spurs. I I, I went I, I'm a little bit older, Colin, so you know I, I had to go back, and I think I was I was barely starting like sixth or seventh grade when um, <laughs> when this streak started. Then, um, so I know this a lot. Um, give me your thoughts. I, I know I've been talking a lot. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, Thursday's slate of games. One of the things that I thought was kind of funny was there was four games that could affect the Spurs' fate. You know, you had the the Grizzlies game, the Suns game. Uh, if those two games had, or at least one of those games had gone in the Spurs' direction, then the Spurs game would have affected their fate. And even after all that, the Portland Nets game still affected their fate because if Portland lost and the Nets made it in, that would have improved the Spurs' draft uh, lottery draft odds. So of all four of those games that could have gone one direction or the other to impact the Spurs in some way or another, all four of them went exactly in the way that was harmful to the Spurs. And at the end of the day, the Spurs game against the Jazz is actually the least impactful game to the organization as a whole, which is kind of strange. And uh, I saw some of Jazz Twitter talking about, and honestly, just because you know we cover the Spurs, I don't know how the draft pick stuff works for teams that were coming into the bubble already in a playoff spot. Mm-hmm. But people were saying that by the Jazz winning that game, that they hurt their draft uh, positioning, oh, wow. which is funny because the Spurs had nothing to play for and the Jazz had something to lose by winning. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, it, pretty pretty tough for Jazz fans probably. But, you know, and I know Pop mentioned this too, it really was the most exciting to watch the Spurs this season, but also probably the last couple seasons. You know, I know both of us kind of take more of a, you know, we look at the team holistically and we kind of step out of any sort of like cheering or rooting interest at all. But it is hard to watch 16 seconds of post play every possession for two years or three years. And as much as that's been efficient for the Spurs, it definitely can lead to basketball that's not always interesting. And the last eight games were certainly way more interesting. So I think from someone who has to watch the, the Spurs a lot and covering and learning about kind of what they're doing and breaking it down. Um, It makes me very excited uh, to hope that they continue playing this way because it's just more interesting to watch than the way they had been playing before. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and yeah, what you, and like I, when I said it um, surpassed expectations, I did want to throw a little data point out there that um, one of the betting sites had them to, to the they over under was just three game, three wins. Um, and so, and so they, I mean, not, not three wins, uh, two wins, I think it was. So, so they passed that, uh, the Spurs. Um, yeah. And then like what you said, I mean, it was, it was just fun. It was really, cause it was something new that we hadn't seen before. I mean, honestly, going back to the preseason podcast, I always thought that Derek and DeJounte were going to start together and I was totally <laughs> wrong. We, you know, I, a lot of us didn't expect that right away he go back to coach pop would go back to Brent Forbes and, and, and Dejounte quickly especially after Derek had a good year as well you know and w- w- taking the Spurs uh, to that round one against the Jazz where he played really I mean not the Jazz the Nuggets we played really well so I think I think for like that reason like I've always just wanted to see the Derek Dejounte matchup but then not only that now you got extra you got Lonnie Walker in there you got and then you had Kelton Johnson getting 26 minutes a night so this was really fun and, and you're right it was really exciting and the fact that they were really successful too um in, in their play now I know I know a few of those we do have to look at the context and it's hard that's what we're going to talk 
talk about this data, but um, some of it is that you have to look at the context. Like a lot of these teams, too, down the stretch, they like the Rockets rested James Harden and a few other teams. Um, uh, that first game against the Jazz, they rested Rudy, um, um, uh, Donovan Mitchell and a few other players. So, so that's the that's the one thing about this data is even though it's going to look good, uh, you have to be very careful of how you evaluate it. But still, it was fun. To, it was something new. All right, Colin. So let's go ahead and, and jump into the um, the first topic here that I want to discuss, and that's the starting lineup. Because, um, you know, I've been addressing this every week on the Spurs cast ever since uh, they restarted their games. Just because, like I said, it's something new. It's something fresh. And we have we have some real data now. So in seven games, they played together. Because, again, um, DeRozan and White rested that final game. Uh, here's, here's what they did, according to Cleaning the Glass. 156 possessions plus 8.5 points per 100. They scored 119.2 off, uh, offensively and uh, held, held the opponent to 110.7 defensively points per 100. Um, we're just going to go ahead and chime. I want to get your thoughts on, on just um, each of the starters and see and how they play. Just your thoughts. So let's go to Derek White first. Scores and these are, these are bubble statistics, so not not the prior part of the season. So Derek White, eighteen point nine points per game in the bubble, eight three point attempts, five point one free throw attempts, constantly got to the line, five assists, ran the team well, four point three rebounds in thirty minutes. So so my question, I, I, we're going to get to his situation later. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, he is extension eligible, eligible this coming off season, and this is what you see Derek might be able to do when he's given real minutes, thirty minutes a night. So, give me your your, your thoughts on on Derek in this bubble, and maybe for the future how how he progresses. Yeah, and I'm sure that this is something that really caught your eye as a point of emphasis as well. But I think out of all the things you you mentioned, the three point attempts, yes. uh, eight of them per game, is like maybe the most important out of all of them, just because. That's the starting lineup that you listed. I think coming into the bubble, part of the reason why I was pretty skeptical of it is because it looks like it's pretty light on shooting. And if if White is going to take three point attempts, uh, especially three point attempts that he's generating himself and hitting them at like a, a really respectable rate, now all of a sudden that gives shooting to the lineup, which is helpful for for a lot of reasons. You know. They have a lot of players in this lineup who can attack the rim very well, but they also need some of that shooting as well. And so that that eight three-point attempts per game is really huge. I, I didn't even know until I was reading the outline about his free-throw attempts per game, but that's also mm-hmm. huge. He is uh, <laughs> he's playing like a Houston Rocket uh, and maybe all of the good ways uh, in that you know he's obviously very much going for for the three-point attempts or going for the for the fouls at the rim. And I think... Um, you know, this is going to be something that we see for, for this whole lineup, but really it starts with Derek and the pressure that this lineup puts on the rim against opponents, which I think can, can really hurt defenses when you have five players on the floor who can put pressure on the rim. And not only that, think about his defense. We didn't even mention that. And Pop, Pop even said it during these bubble games. He said Derek's you know, our best defender right now. So like he he compliment he complimented complimented him that way as well. So he is twenty. Oh, you know what? Let's say the the, the whole um, extension part until we get to him uh, to the off season part. So we will talk about the off season options considering Derek White uh, later down in the episode. All right, let's go to the next player um, who played really well for the for the Spurs in the bubble, and that's Demar Derozan. Uh, these are bubble stats again: twenty-one point seven points per game, leading the team in scoring; seven point one free throw, free throws; five point seven assists; four point four rebounds in thirty-two minutes. Uh, what were your thoughts on DeRozan? Yeah, so it, watching him was fun as well. You know, we talk about oh, it's fun to watch the young guys, but he was actually really fun to watch as well. In the sense of, you know, he kind of knew when to defer to the young guys and then knew when to take over, and. You know, we heard some reporting right before the season stopped that he wasn't really happy in San Antonio, and then he refuted it. And it's sometimes hard to know 
mm-hmm. how true that noise is, you know, if it's true at all, like to what level is it true? You know, is he just venting because of a bad day or is he like, I super want out? Um, and obviously he hasn't talked about it because he's not the type of player that would talk about it vocally, but it almost is easy to imagine that if he was discontent with kind of how everything was going before, that he would enjoy playing in the lineup that he played in in the bubble so much more just in terms of style of play and kind of he could let the young guys be in control for most of the game and then take over when he needs to. And that seemed to be a really good system for him because, you know, in those fourth quarters, he was he was really good at scoring when they needed him down the stretch. So he was exciting to watch play. I think that obviously they have some size issues when they play him at the four, but I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, if they surround him with really capable defenders, like putting him at the four, like, again puts a lot of offensive uh exerts a lot of offensive pressure on opponents and it's it's you know just a really solid lineup for the spurs and a really solid role for him in in kind of the spurs team construction yeah and like defensively you know aside from maybe the the nuggets game and the um and i think it was the sixers the nuggets and there was another team oh the memphis game where he had to go against jerry jackson jr uh jeremy grant and then there was um uh who did the sixers have oh tobias harris so there there are going to be some teams where he's going to struggle obviously you know when they have better um players there at the four but you know the majority teams uh a lot of times don't have have as many good players at the four and so we saw that he was able to to be fine defensively and like you said they have a lot more younger athletic wings out there who can help him out defensively like that's probably got to be even better for him the fact that he doesn't have to guard like the, like you know um because it was they had brendan Bryn starting with him as well so they would always have to figure out the, the mismatch uh the, the offense to the other team trying to target which uh, who they're going to go after DeRozan or, or, or Brent. so now he's getting like you said the fours he i i i thought he was he was playing fine there at the four um in these games now obviously the teams that size did hurt him uh let's move on to um and we'll also mention DeRozan later on in the episode about his situation this summer um, or this offseason. I always say summer, but it's now the fall, should we say, <laughs> coming up. All right, let's go to DeJounte Murray. Um, these are bubble stats again. 12.6 points per game, 4.3 assists, six rebounds in 30 minutes. Um, what did you think about him? Yeah, so I think whenever you have a player that suffers a major injury, I think it can take a while, even up to a season, for them to kind of get back to where they were before the injury and I think we started seeing him get back to kind of his like athletic uh, normal level pretty soon before the season shut down and he was able to kind of pick that back up and he did look like the Murray of old um, from before the injury and so obviously his, his jump shot is better than it was before the injury but I think now that he's like back to where he was athletically and he's kind of able to um do some of the things on defense he was able to do before the injury. I think now the next step for him is to, and I know this is, I guess, kind of future focused, but watching him made me think like, okay, this, this looks like the Murray we saw before the injury. And now it's just on how much is that jump shot going to develop? And that's really going to determine kind of like what level of player he is, but it, it was, you know, encouraging to see him playing, like Murray before the injury. And like I said, his jump shot is still better than it was then, but I think the injury kind of set him back in terms of developing that specific part of his game. Yeah, for for me, you know, it's just it's just his his, play, his playmaking in the half court that that it still, still seems like he needs a lot of growth there. That's the area where I, I think that you, even when like DeRozan's off the floor, or Derek White, the, the offense completely stalls when he should be the guy who's kind of taking over there and kind of um, you know he does a good job of when defense goes defenses go under on his mid range jumper. He likes to uh, go ahead and pull that up. But even like his three, you know, you look at his season stats, he was actually a good shooter when he was wide open from three. He just didn't take them as often. He would always um, you know look to drive on certain times, and even when he was um, like like I said wide open. So 
So I, I feel like, like what you mentioned, he needs to increase his shooting, but also just his decision making in the half court. Um, I think that that needs to go to a different level. Now he is only he is only I think twenty four, twenty three, so he still has um, you know some growth there uh, for himself. And plus they have him on, on a four year extension, so so they, so he has some time here. Um, let's look at Lonnie Walker. He uh, the fourth. He got some starts here in the bubble. Uh, scores eleven point three points per game. Uh, takes three point eight uh, three point attempts and shoots very well, forty percent. We we saw him a lot in these clips of, of making corner threes wide open or, or above the break threes whenever a defense would leave him in 20, 28 minutes. And he also did a good job of of cutting off the ball because he knows, like he mentioned this in a post game interview, he knows that he's not going to get thrown all the pick and rolls because he starts with Dejounte, Demar, and and Derek White. Uh, so he tries to to kind of score and find his his areas that he can impact the game. What did you think about Lonnie's play? Yeah, so that that was another concern I had when I looked at the you know potential lineup that had all four of those players um, is that all of them, to my knowledge, seem like they would be best with the ball in their hands. And so like, what does that do to the offense? And so I think Lonnie recognizing kind of that that's the way that this lineup is constructed and that he gets the most value for himself and for the team by like being a strong off ball player, I think really helps this lineup keep chugging along if he kind of refused to be a strong off-ball player and wanted to be a guy with the ball in his hands I think this lineup would get really clunky so I think him being able to recognize that and buy into that role is huge for for making this lineup successful Uh, and just looking at the raw stats I think the one thing that you are really happy with is that it's a 40 percent three-point attempt uh, conversion rate but you would want that 3.8 attempts per game to go up you know if now that he's hitting a really solid mark you want the volume to come with it and if he can continue hitting obviously when he increases his attempts it'll probably go down from 40 percent just because it's hard to maintain that level of efficiency but if he's able to maintain high efficiency while increasing the attempts then that's just going to make him an even better off ball player and kind of make him even better for these lineups and involve several players that really like the ball in their hands yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, and then uh, something that one of our other writers last week wrote about, um, uh, and I'm going to promote that piece later, is a. Uh uh, Lonnie and, and Dejounte's finishing in the open court. They had a lot of trouble there. And even when I look at their drive stats um, for, in the bubble too, they they were too, they were out of the out of the guys that were driving and attacking the defense. They had a little bit of trouble converting. Uh, and you know, it's uh, we're going to get to Kelton a little bit, but that's something where Kelton just has that that body that body size and that strength where he's able to finish with contact a lot of times. Whereas Lonnie and Demar, they I mean not not Demar, uh, uh, Dejounte, they like to take you know lo- longer floaters. They they, they try they, they can't finish as well with the contact. So we'll see if they work on that over the summer or over the fall. Um, okay, the last players the starting lineup and, and this is a big um bubble game for him because he is because he is going to become a restricted free agent and that's Jakob Pertl. he got 26 minutes a night uh, as the starting center he scores 8.3 points per game 8.1 rebounds he grabs and he blocks 1.4 shots per game what did you think about Jakob's play in the, in the bubble if he's he turns into a starter down the road yeah so I, I thought that he played really well you know I think the problem with um, a player like Pertl, who brings a lot of value defensively and with his screens and with kind of some of the stuff that is harder to measure um, with numbers is it can be really easy to see the mistakes like when he didn't dunk the ball at the end of the the 76ers game right mm-hmm. and um, some of the things where people are able to say oh why didn't he do this there why didn't he do this there but it's a lot harder to recognize what he does well because what he does well usually leads to nothing happening for instance like if he plays really good defense now the other team doesn't score or maybe they don't pass it to a player who would have been able to score or if he sets a really good screen 
now the pick and roll is just running the way it should be and it's not like a broken play. So some of the things he does well involve the absence of bad things rather than the addition of good things. And because that's really hard for people to notice, sometimes when there's a play that goes poorly for him, people will like latch onto that. And I think there were a couple of those plays in the bubble for sure. But I think overall, he was a really, really strong player, especially defensively in the bubble. And I think, um, you know, it's going to be interesting since Eubanks also played well. And I know this is very future focused, too, in terms of, OK, now they have three bigs. Obviously, Eubanks is probably definitely a backup guy right now. But but the NBA right now is one of those situations where three bigs like that is a lot to have on your roster. And so it'll be interesting to kind of see how they have to figure all that out. Yes, for sure. We're going to get to Drew and, and Jakob's situation and, and, the, and the other uh, big that you were talking about down there a little bit in the episode. Uh, but yeah, and one thing, like like you were saying, you know, Jakob's box score may not show it his impact, but look at, I mean, we're going to get to some stats a little bit later, but one of the things you see is, is teams did not finish well at the rim against the Spurs, and that's, you know, you have to attribute that to Jakob's defense. He was in there most of those minutes, and as well as um, as Eubanks, like you mentioned. So, I mean, there was, the, even though they were playing smaller and he, and he had more of a responsibility to protect the rim and help out his teammates, he did do that, and, you know, he contested a a lot of shots there uh, for, for, for for players when they drove. All right, I, I know that there was a. I do want to mention a lot of players who played well in, in the bubble games. Uh, Quindary Weatherspoon, you know, uh, he, he played well. Rudy Gay, of course, played really well. Patty Mills in those few games that they needed him, he played well. Uh, even Marco um, shot the ball well and, and did well off the bench. But there's one guy who I really, really want to talk about and spend spend some time on, and that's Keldon Johnson. Uh, so he completes his rookie year, um, you know, with the Spurs. Uh, obviously, it was shortened because of because of the pandemic, and they had a shortened season. But we're going to go through his bubble stats right here. So in the bubble, he scores 14.1 points per game, shoots 65% from three, gets to the free throw line almost uh, just just slightly less than uh, Derek White and DeRozan with 4.3 free throw attempts per game. Uh, gets five rebounds a game off the bench, 1.1 assists, 1.1 steals in 26 minutes. His shot profile. 65% of his shots in the paint, 25% of his 25% of his shots from 3, only 10% of his shots from mid-range. So so already the 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 3 and D player that you want to have. And then um I was looking up their drive numbers, the players, the drives numbers amongst the wings, amongst the wings uh just in the bubble. He finished at the at the rim on his drives 28% of the time. Uh he got to the free throw line 35% of the time and those are both uh, uh, team highs in terms of the wings. And again, he's the rookie of this group. Uh, what did you think about Keldon's play? Yeah, so, you know, when I was kind of like reflecting on his play earlier, I thought kind of the same thing you did in terms of like 3 and D player. And that's one of the most coveted types of role players in the league is a strong 3 and D player. And they're hard to get um, when they're free agents. A lot of the times they'll go to the teams that have championship aspirations or they'll cost quite a bit on the open market. And for the Spurs to potentially find one in the draft and for that player to develop into that 3 and D type player so early on is is incredibly valuable in terms of team building. But as I was looking at some of the other stats you have about driving and, and such, a normal 3 and D player usually isn't as successful with the ball in their hands as Keldon yep. was in the bubble. Mm-hmm. And, you know... This was a very hot stretch for him, and so it's you know to be determined. Like, what is the the average of play from him? This was, I, I would say, kind of a very above average performance. And so, obviously, he still will be developing over the next couple of years, and there'll be stretches where he plays lower than that average, and then stretches like this where he just plays so far above what his his average level is. But I think. You know, a player who can defend, hit threes well, and make plays with the ball in their hands, 
you know, if he keeps developing down that road, now you're talking about an incredibly valuable player in the NBA, especially from the wing. Um, and it's really kind of hard because, you know, is he going to kind of stay at this level or is he going to develop a lot more? Because if he develops a lot more, obviously it, it would be, we'd have to see exactly what that looks like, but that's definitely like the model of an all-star player. If he kind of takes what he's done well and like amps it up. So it's really exciting in terms of what he showed in the bubble. And it'll be interesting to see next season how real this eight game streak was for him. Yes, for sure. And like the, the one thing that he has though, that, that some of these other uh, wing players ha- that they don't have is the fact that he uses his size and he just wants mm-hmm. to attack first. Like we asked him yesterday after the game and he said, you know, he's been attacking the rims. That's, that's like his game. That's what he does first. Like that's like his, his, his what he wants to do. And so like, that's the thing is he seeks out contact and, and he has that big body where he can finish over players. Uh, and you saw him do that in these bubble games. Now I agree with you. It's a very small sample size. And like I mentioned, there was, there's some context there where he wasn't playing against sometimes against the best lineups because a lot of some of the teams that they played down the stretch started to rest their best players or some of their, some of their better players. Uh, and, and also like that three point shooting, he did very well, 65% from, from three there in, in the bubble. But like I said, in the G league, it was lower it was at 25%, um, over there. And so, so, you know, maybe he did work on it really well during the, uh, during the pandemic, during the shutdown. And then he showed it off there in, in the um, restart, but I do want to see more of a sample size in just eight games. You know, that can really, um, you know, 25 to, to 50 games is, 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 is a really good sample that I'm looking forward to seeing. But like, but like, but like I was saying, I've been seeing on, um, some, some different, um, uh, um, so social media accounts, uh, his his potential offensively, I think, is untapped because we know that he wants to attack the rim, and we he wants he can shoot the three if he's wide open, like like we saw, and he's scoring, putting up twenty uh, plus points without getting sets run for him. He's not running pick and roll. He's doing this off um, secondary action where somebody drives in, they kick out to him, and he quickly makes a decision: am I driving, or am I or am I shooting a three, or am I or am I passing to my teammates? He also makes really good decisions in the open court where he knows he's kind of evaluating when he's bringing the ball down whether or not he can attack the defense and try to finish at the rim, uh, and that was really highlighted in that Rockets game. So my my thought is like. We don't know the level how 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 high he can get. Like you mentioned, um, potentially, potentially, maybe I'll start um down the road. But again, that's how, that's what does he do in the off season in terms of what does the team want him to do uh, in terms of learning how to become a playmaker. Um, like again in, in the half court, I think that's where his bars at. Like how how high does he pass that bar of executing in the half court and just working on his game, learning how to be a post up player a little bit, learning how to run pick and roll, learning how to do a little bit of isolation. I'm not trying to make comparisons to somebody that was on the team previously, <laughs> but this is the mold that they had that guy in where he he was first defense first pop like that first, then all of a sudden he starts you know they start getting him to start shooting some threes, work on that. And then slowly they started incorporating it, incorporating him in the half court offense, and of course he went to another level. So I mean, it's it's only his first year. He, he just finished it, and again, it was a shortened season, so some a lot of this data does look a lot better than usual. Um, but again, I mean, Kelda looks really good right now. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, all right. Let's move on to, to our next topic, and that's the style on offense and defense. Um, that we kind of saw from this team uh, in these eight games uh, compared to the, to the regular season before um, they went to these eight games. All right, so offense in the bubble, they ended up being ranked ninth out of 22 bubble teams. Um, they got to the free throw line more is what we saw. Uh, they didn't score in the fast break as much, but a reason for that was because Coach Pop wanted them crashing the boards on defense. Remember, they, they didn't want to get out-rebounded since they were a smaller unit. Uh, also, their turnovers increased uh, is what we saw. Uh, they attacked the rim slightly more, like I mentioned. Um, still, they, they, had a, they had a high volume of taking their mid-rangers and non-restricted area shots, which is like those floater range shots. And they took a lower amount of threes, and that's something you mentioned about the starting lineup aside from Derek. Uh, but they did shoot well. But Now, again, they shot 42%, I think it was, in the, 
in the bubble play overall as a team. But a lot of that is because it's just an eight-game sample size, so your numbers look a lot better. Uh, going to defensively, this is where they made the biggest turnaround. They were ninth in the bubble as of um, you know as of the game against the, against Utah. They were ninth. They were ninth uh, amongst twenty-two teams in, in crashing the offensive board. I mean, keeping the teams off the offensive board, the opponents, and that was a big concern for them since they were playing smaller. I think the only time they really got exposed there was against the the, the Sixers and also the, the Nuggets. That was the, the two games that that was key. Um, they were first in not putting opponents on the free throw line. So free throw rate, they were first. Uh, they were sixth in limiting fast break points. So that was something that's huge for them is that they're, they're, they're usually a bad transition team on defense. And now they're getting back to one of those staples. That was always, you know, in the Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, era Spurs. that was always their, their, their staple was not putting teams on the free throw line and also not giving up uh, fast break points, limiting transition defense. And so they did a great job there. Six, like I mentioned, in limiting um, fast break points. But we did see them get attacked a lot more at the rim, so teams did go at them. However, like I was like like you were mentioning about Jakob and Drew Eubanks, they were actually um, teams actually shot worse at the rim in terms of accuracy. The Spurs were fifth best in, ac- in limiting three point ac- I mean paint accuracy, should I say, restricted area uh, amongst the twenty two teams. We also saw a, de- a decrease. So we did see since teams were attacking them more and shooting more threes, we saw a decrease in forcing teams to take the non-restricted area shot or mid-range shot. So teams were kind of getting either to the rim or um, taking threes. Like I mentioned, we still saw a lot of uh, a lot of threes. However, they decreased wide open threes by about six percent. So again, you're, you're running smaller units, better wing defenders out there, and you're going to have you're going to have a lot of gains on defense. So what did you think about their defense? Yeah, it was it was kind of a lot better than I had imagined and you know I know um, I know this whole section is kind of about their style of play and and one of the things that really surprised me was I thought that they would have to score in the open court in transition you know especially Mm -hmm. looking at at this lineup I I did not think they'd be able to score in the half court just because like I said I I looked at the the starting lineup and I thought okay well this isn't a lineup that shoots a lot of threes and this is a lineup that has a lot of guys who need the ball in their hands to do something on offense but you know, credit to all of the guys in that lineup, but especially to Derek White and to DeMar DeRozan for mm-hmm. kind of their creation abilities. Um, and then obviously Derek for shooting uh, eight three-point attempts a game. That kind of helps space that lineup out. But I think the defense is is very encouraging. I think the number one thing that's really been hindering them the past couple of years in terms of like building a successful defense, there's been a lot of things wrong, but I think the Spurs really like to focus on transition defense as a cornerstone like you were talking about, mm-hmm. and the fact that that kind of really got away from them. And I, they'd kind of regressed to average on getting teams to the free throw line as well, if I'm not mistaken. So those are both really good indicators, and it is good to see that opponents scored so inefficiently at the rim for the Spurs, but you're still playing with fire when yeah. the teams are able to get to the rim to try to score that often. And Pirtle and Eubanks were really good at kind of denying opponents from scoring at the rim. But if if opponents can get shots at the rim a lot, you really are kind of playing with fire. And all it takes is maybe one bad quarter. And opponents can build a huge lead just because they're able to get a ton of attempts at the rim. So you would want to see the actual attempts by opponents at the rim go down. But... Obviously, the fact that the Spurs have reliable rim protection is huge. And kind of just looking at the defensive numbers, other than the attempts at the rim, you know, we've seen successful defenses that look kind of like the Spurs do in terms of opponent shot profile. You know, the Bucks give up a ton of threes and just mm-hmm. really focus on protecting 
the paint and not putting teams on the foul line. And that's been a hugely successful defensive scheme. And, and so kind of looking at this outline, you can see this is what successful teams in the NBA are doing now. Um, and if they can kind of continue this style of defense, but maybe just turn down the attempts at the rim, uh, maybe maybe they can find some consistency with this defense. Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, that, that's definitely – you had a good point there. I mean, the, the fact that they are letting teams get into that room, and, that, again, you have a very high chance of converting shots there. Um, and, uh, so that's something to watch. And also, um, just look at, at the math game, how it was in the bubble. Um, so they were plus 28 on twos. That's that's when you take mid-range and, and paint shots. They were plus 28. They were minus 45 on threes, which is um, – so basically they were outscored. So, like I said, they limited threes a little bit, or, or teams didn't shoot as well against them. So that helped them out because that was one of their biggest deficiencies throughout the season before. And then they were plus 49 at the free throw line like you know when, when you're when you're scoring well at the free throw line plus you're not putting your opponent uh you, it, it works out um overall so they were plus 32 overall all right so now let's go ahead and jump into the off-season outlook so now colin let's go kind of by the calendar but also by some situations with the players and where everything stands so the first thing that's coming up spurs cast listeners is next thursday august 20th is the draft lottery right now the spurs are are in the 11th spot uh, for now, which has a 9.4% chance to go top four according to Tankathon, or a 2% chance at number one. Uh, Colin, you you recently um, ran some some simulations uh, on this on this spot in the 11th slot. Uh, what did your simulation say? And if you want to give any more details on this draft lottery coming up, yeah. So I think in in the simulation board out, they are much more likely to get the 11th pick than any other situation. Uh, you know that was the highest kind of outcome out of the 10,000 simulations that I ran by far was the 12th pick. But I think something to just maybe kind of taper Spurs fans' expectations with was that falling to 12 is more likely than the Spurs going up into the top four. So kind of in order of what's likely, uh, Getting the 11th pick is the most likely by far. It's it's like a 75% chance or higher, just very high. And, and again, that's what the simulations bore out. Then the next most likely thing is the Spurs getting the 12th pick. And then after that, it's jumping into the top four. So obviously with the way that the lottery reform kind of has set the odds, they have a better chance of jumping into the top four than they did before. Uh, and when you look at the odds, it can be exciting for some fans to look at like, oh, we have this like 9.4 or 5% chance to jump into the top four. That's awesome. And sometimes it just takes seeing a visual to kind of see how small of a chance that actually yeah. is. So <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it is, it's helpful to know, just set the expectations at the 11th pick. But if, if the draft lottery comes and... Uh, they announced the 11th pick and it's going to a team that's not the Spurs and they haven't said the Spurs yet. That's when you can get really excited because you know the pick have, uh, has gone to the top four. So until until that happens, just imagine it's the 11th pick and maybe the 12th pick. Yeah, and, and you said there was like a slight, slight chance, right? Like very, like not even like big chance. I mean, like a tiny, tiny chance that they could right. drop to 14th, right? Like, like Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and actually, you know, I was thinking the biggest brain thing uh, for the Spurs to do is to luck into that 14th spot 
and then just pick the best player in the draft like they always do, of course. And then they uh, won't have to pay that player as much on his uh, rookie scale contract because he's a 14th pick instead of the 11th pick. Um, of course, it, yeah, it, it's like a one in 11,000 chance for that to actually happen, though. Okay. Uh, so if that happens, it'd be pretty catastrophic. Yeah, man. You just reminded me that like I'm not used to watching the Spurs in the draft lottery. Like when you were just saying, you know, if 11 comes and they haven't, their name hasn't been called. Uh oh, that means they got a better pick. That means they're in the, you know, they're moving up. So just thinking about that, like I have, you know, in all the years that I've, ever since you know I've been covering the Spurs, you know, for Project Spurs since 2011. So th- I, I've just thought about that. I've never had to do a lottery cover a lottery before. So this will be the first time. That'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's a new experience for everyone if you're you know, <laughs> on this team, except for the, the year that Tim Duncan came. All right, so uh, now after that, Colin, on um, August 20th, uh, then then the NBA draft gets here um, in, in October. On October 16th, the draft will happen. The Spurs will have um, one first-round pick, so um, you know whatever they get in the lottery, whatever pick that is, uh, and then also a second-round pick as well. So so that's what to expect, Spurs cast listeners. Again, follow Benjamin Bornstein's work on Project Spurs. He's going to have you covered for the draft with all the prospects and, and that, that will fit at that at those picks. Uh, now let's go into the off-season um, in terms of the players once um, once free agency comes. All right, the first player we're going to discuss is DeMar DeRozan. We kind of mentioned him earlier. He has a $27.7 million player option this coming offseason. According to Bobby Marks on his most recent um, article that I had read, uh, DeRozan can make this decision as early as August 20th, which is by next Thursday, or as late as October 13th. And also something to keep in mind is that he is extension eligible. So if the team wanted to um, create, you know, a little bit, maybe a two or three year deal with him, uh, they could do that uh, if they really liked how he, how he works out with these young guys. Uh, and again, these are the dates as of Bobby Marks' last article. He's going to be coming out with a new article pretty soon on the Spurs. So he may change those, those dates. So just make sure you, you read Bobby Marks' work from ESPN. Uh, so, Colin, what do you think about DeRozan's decision? Do you think he's opting in or out? You know, I, I think especially given we don't, and I, I know this is driving you and me crazy, is that we don't know what the cap is. We don't even have any yeah. sort of idea of, you know, is it going to be, are they going to try to keep it the same and just like maybe do some funky stuff with the escrow and, and all that kind of stuff? Or are they going to like drop it by a lot? We, you know, we have no idea. But just with all of the financial insecurity that the league is facing over the next couple of years, I think that no matter kind of how he felt about his place on the team or where the team was going before the bubble, I think it just makes a whole lot of financial sense to to just opt in just because we have no idea what that market's going to look like um, come the off season. But I do think there's really no reason for him to make that decision early that I can think of. So I think that, you know, he's probably going to wait until later on in the process unless you know, he's been talking with the Spurs and they've come to some sort of uh, mutual understanding of maybe not an extension, but just an agreement that, that it's best for both sides. If, if they haven't come to that kind of agreement, he's probably going to wait until October to make his decision. But I do think that opting in um, is probably the more likely one just because it's probably the, the more financially secure for him, given we don't know what the market's going to look like. For sure. I'm with you there. I think he's opting in. You know, every you know, we saw um, Andre Drummond do that really quickly as soon as, you know, they, they started as soon as the reports started coming out that the, the NBA is going to lose money this coming offseason uh, because of, you know, because of the pandemic and how, how they lost the TV. I mean, the fan revenue that, that, that they bring in and also uh, I know they were able to salvage some of the TV revenue uh, by playing these these seating games. So I, I do think he's opting in as far as extension eligible. I, I don't think that they would extend him um, just because, again, they have Kelton Johnson coming down the road if they wanted to play that position. Um, so, so, yeah, I expect the Rosenthal. And I don't know how early he'll do it as well. Just like you said, he may just wait till like um, October and maybe that we'll start getting better figures on the, um, 
on the cap situation, what it's going to look like. I know that uh, Bobby Marks, like I mentioned earlier, he he thinks it's going to be the 109. They're just going to re- do what they did this year, use the same cap projection. So that's kind of how, how I'm operating and, and looking at my cap sheets. Uh, but one other one other thing that he's mentioned before that's really interesting is they may, because it, we don't know exactly when a vaccine's coming, so that doesn't mean we don't know when, when, when things can go back to normal in terms of letting fans in buildings and things like that. Uh, because of that, um, we may see a situation where like where like they, they set a a, a, a um a, an increasing cap, but but at a certain amount for the, for the next three years, like a predetermined amount. Uh, I've seen that model as well, and just because again that, that kind of gives, that's like the most that's like the safest model in the event that basketball doesn't come back fully next season or even the season after. So that's why uh, maybe they'll look at that route. So for now, I, I am looking at the one hundred nine um, um, rolling over with that cap number. All right, so yeah, so we'll see what happens to DeRozan. Let's move on to Jakob Pertl. We mentioned him earlier. Uh, by October 16th, the Spurs need to offer him a $5 million qualifying offer, and then he becomes a becomes a restricted free agent. And so Spurs cast listeners, just to re- recap what a restricted free agent is, it means that let's say that the Spurs make Pertl a restricted free agent. He goes to a team. They give him an offer sheet at a certain amount. Okay, it has to be three years at minimum. Then Pertl's agent brings that, that contract offer back to the Spurs, and the Spurs have 48 hours, two days, to decide are they going to match it and keep Pertl at those terms, or are they are they going to decline it, and then he gets to basically sign with that team for those terms. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with Pertl this offseason, Colin? Yeah, it's really hard to know kind of what his market will be, and, and mm-hmm. I kind of had thrown the net out there in terms of asking Spurs fans kind of what they would be happy with. Um, and the, kind of the reason why I, I remember asking – would you want the Spurs to pay him more than $10 million, or would you just want him to walk at that point? And I was kind of just using that as a proxy for the MLE, and I can see him getting around that number. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting just in – like the bubble was – it was fun and it was exciting, but with the development of some of the players and kind of how well some of these lineups fit uh, and the fact that like Aldridge wasn't there, it kind of complicated some things in terms of like what is this team supposed to look like next season and going forward? Going forward, do they feel like, okay, we can convince Aldridge to play a more modern style and we feel like Eubanks will work as a backup center so we can let him walk? Or do they feel like Pirtle is the defensive center of our future and he's important for our starting lineup? Because if that's the case, then they'll probably sign him unless he goes you know, at a much higher above market value rate. So I think, I think they're going to try to keep him. Um, and I think that... He, he probably will have a decent market, but I, I don't foresee the Spurs getting outbid unless there's one team that's just willing to offer him, you know, more than anyone expects. Uh, I'm with you. I, I've always said, uh, you know, I've always thought that it's going to be slightly above the mid, mid the MLE. Just, you know, just just letting Jakob know, like, hey, you know, we, we you know, this is kind of the market for you right now is the MLE. But we want to give give a little bit more than what, what other teams can, can do to, to offer you. Offer you. Uh, so I, I see them doing that. Uh, as well and and you know it goes back to that question like you mentioned like what happens with Aldridge because that's the you know because I, I there was an interview I think that the ringer had quoted an interview where um Pirtle during the during the pandemic during the shutdown when they were when the players were away from the teams he had given a quote to some some media outlet where uh he had said something like he wants to start or like he feels like he should be getting more minutes at this point in his career like that's going to play big into his um off these off-season decision from what I had read there I, again it was on the ringer.com Kevin O'Connor wrote it so uh, uh if I can go yeah that's one of those quotes that he had so so again he, I think he wants that that role where he wants to be the starting player he wants to get you know over 25 minutes a game so so we'll see what happens with Pirtle again he's a restricted free agent uh they can make him starting on October 16th uh the, the next two players are going to both be unrestricted free agents and my opinion on one of the players has changed in, in the bubble and that's uh, Marco Bellinelli and Bryn Forbes 
Uh, you know, prior to the bubble, I had always thought that because, you know, Coach Pop really likes Brent Forbes, he likes his shooting, he's, he's a consistent player for him on the team. I always felt like they might just give Brent like a one or two year deal uh, if he can't find anything out on the market. Um, and also because, you know, he, he, he was brought up in the Spurs system uh, uh, after going undrafted. Uh, and I thought for sure they were going to let Marco just walk. But now after seeing that, you know, this team was really good, um, you know, and, and um, just in the bubble without Forbes um, and, you know, especially defensively, we saw that, that that was one of the areas where he struggles and they and they had to gain their ninth defensively. I do think that they're probably going to let him walk now after seeing this bubble play. What do you think about these two players, Belly and Forbes? Yeah, uh, these are two... Um, interesting players to talk about because they're definitely um, very polarizing among fans. And I, I, thought, I, you, I of, thought you were going to say fan favorites. <laughs> but yeah, well, you know, I, I was <laughs> as you were talking, I was counting in my head how many years has Forbes played because they really need him on the bird exception. Like that's the only way I think they're going to be able to sign him to the max that he's going to demand. But uh, no, it, it's really interesting <laughs> because I think I think the Spurs have a case to bring back either of these players on certain deals. And if they do that, I think there's going to be some people who are upset. Kind of like you were saying, I don't, I don't know if they bring back either one, but I, I maybe don't foresee them bringing back both, just kind of with the direction the team's going. Um, but I can see kind of having a bench guy who is a really solid three point shooter is a role that that can be fine. I think you know both of these players may have some limits on defense, but I think when you're just playing against bench lineups, that weakness is less important than the three-point shooting you bring. And I know that's been up and down for both players, but I think solely in a bench role, kind of having one of those types of players on your team can be useful. So I, I don't know which one it will be. Um, and kind of like you, I, I've been someone who, who thought, you know, there's been times where Forbes has been targeted on defense this year, but a lot of the criticism he's gotten by Spurs Twitter or whatever has, has been really harsh this year. But kind of seeing the team play without him in the bubble kind of makes me wonder if that's going to affect the Spurs' decision-making. They've never mm-hmm. been a team that I feel like would make a decision just because of eight games, but it, yeah, it did seem true. like it, it worked pretty well with the lineup they had. Yeah, for sure. So so we'll see what happens with both of those players. Um, like you mentioned, you know, I... I being on a backup role and you know at, at, at whatever the contract it depends on on how much the, the contract is worth you know i don't i don't know uh you know i could see them maybe giving forbes if, if it's gonna be like a backup role we'll, we'll see what happens uh looking at trey lyles now he is on a non-guaranteed contract for 5.5 million dollars uh this coming off season but the team has to let him know by by october 18th they have to figure out are they going to going to waive him and then he he just gets one million dollars guaranteed or if they let that date pass without waiving him he gets the full 5.5 million um i'm of the i'm of the expectation that they're going to keep Trey. They liked what they saw out of him. You know, he was expected to play with this group in the bubble, but then he had he um, just just at a, at a last minute timing. Um, you know, he had that appendectomy. Uh, what do you think about Trey Trey's future? Yeah, I think um, kind of the Spurs big rotation is, and we talked about this um, a little bit earlier. If they if they re-sign all of their or or guarantee all of their bigs, that that big rotation is is pretty. Um, cramped in terms of the number of people that are kind of involved there. And obviously if they bring back Trey or if they guarantee his contract, I'm guessing that we probably won't see the same starting lineup. Obviously we Pirtle would probably not be starting over Aldridge if they kept all their bigs. Aldridge would be in that position. Mm-hmm. But you can't imagine that they would bring um Lyles 
Hurdle and Eubanks, if he is a rotation player next season, off the bench, all three of those guys. So I, I'm just really interested to see. Like you said, they, they've been high on him, and he is young, and I think he does a lot of things uh, well for the Spurs on the court. Uh, kind of like Hurdle. I mean, very different things, but similar in the sense of they're the things that would go unnoticed that kind of help a young lineup keep uh, just kind of keep kicking along. Um, but yeah, it is interesting in terms of, like you said, I can see them guaranteeing him, but at that point you're starting to look at, okay, well, they're probably going to lose one of these bigs then because that's a lot to keep all four of those guys we mentioned. And there's still even other bigs that they could keep or you know not guarantee their contracts. So, so there's a lot going on, especially with their big rotation. <laughs> now that you just made me think about this, I might actually change my, 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 uh, my expectation because – Think about it. They, you know, you see Kelton coming up in the system. I think they want to maybe get Lucas Simonich some minutes, and he's going to play the four. And so that's another problem. It's like, where is he going to get his development minutes at? Like, I, I maybe come out the bench for sure. But like, they have Rudy Gay there, and if they bring Trey back, they have him at the four. But then they they, they may still st- start small with like DeRozan at the four. So now that now that you start mentioning all the biggest they have on this roster, I'm not 100 percent sure now that Trey's coming back. <laughs> so so we'll kind of see actually that that's interesting. So so yeah, I mean he 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 had a really good year with the Spurs. Um, you know, especially, especially, I was really impressed with his three point shot and its consistency um, compared to how he was shooting. I think it was Denver or Utah, uh, where he struggled there uh, in the previous seasons. But um, yeah, I mean, it really comes down to who, which big do they let walk, and how much do they want to make Samanich a part of the, a part of the team next year? How much do they really want him to get some real minutes? Because I think that's that's something to watch. It is uh, you got you got to look at the young guys coming up down the road, and, and that's one thing is is Simonich, If all these guys are still here, Rudy Gay, Rudy Gay, Trey Lyles, Demarcus, etc. Uh, uh, Samanich isn't going to be able to play unless you know. So, so, so that that's interesting. So we'll figure out what they do with uh, uh, what kind of decision they make with uh, Trey Lyles. Let's go over to Derek White. Now he's back on the team next year, guaranteed. I mean, yeah, this coming off season. However, the following year he's going to be a restricted free agent. So what can the Spurs do? Starting on October eighteenth, they can extend him. Okay, he's extension eligible, and we saw them do that. Uh, do this, get an extension with Dejounte Murray this past uh, off season when when they extended Murray back in October on a four year deal. Um, you know, north of like fourteen million uh, for for each season. Uh, and Derek is 26 right now, so so if they were extending like a four-year deal, he'll he'll, he'll basically be be on this deal up until his, the, the the majority of his prime. Uh, what do you think about White um, coming off upcoming off season? Yeah, I think so. I haven't actually looked at the books in terms of like what their 2021 offseason money could look like, and obviously, I think uh, giving an extension could could impact that. But I do think the Spurs kind of have a path to their future. Um, you know, we don't maybe see a path to championship contention again with this current core, but these guys are definitely the guys I think they're going to focus on developing. And just because we don't know what the cap situation is going to look like, I think it makes sense for both sides to have an extension kind of like they did with DeJounte Murray. Um, and this is something I don't think a lot of people want to talk about maybe when it comes to the young guys, because the young guys are so exciting and everyone wants to see how they develop. But the number that he would be on an extension would probably be a much better contract for matching purposes if they ended up making a trade for a bigger piece to kind of put them into that contention level if the time came to do such a thing. You know, it's kind of harder to match salaries when you're trading uh, rookie scale extension contracts or, or mm-hmm. sorry, rookie scale contracts. So I think it would definitely hurt their cap space for the offseason that's going to be like a very big offseason where everyone's expecting to have money and it's going to be a huge free agent class and yada yada. But I think it does make sense to them if, in their mind, they don't think that they're going to get to 
championship contention again or even like high level playoff contention mm-hmm. through signing a big name free agent but rather just through drafting and then making a really opportune trade when the time comes and i don't i'm not even saying Derek white would be that guy i just think the more guys you have on contracts that are easier to trade for matching purposes the better if such a deal came up yeah, for sure. It's so that's kind of my mindset's been on, um, especially after this bubble, how how good he was for the team. Uh, I'm I'm thinking like just a little bit north of what Dejounte got, maybe like fifteen to sixteen million a year. Um, uh, and then and then you know, like you said, like we we both said, you know, he, this is gonna be a four year deal most likely. So um, if they were to extend him, and you know, maybe give it like a two years window, like see how good he, you know, how much more he develops in those two years. And if he doesn't, and, and you you got to make some moves to, to get some cash space or things like that, maybe you know his contract is manageable. Or if if he continues to make development and Dejounte kind of stalls a little bit with his development, well then maybe you can look at moving Dejounte, etc. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that they should extend him, and also because like we both mentioned, you know, we don't know what the what the financial situation will be like for the next few years and so i think it's safer to get to, to go with a player who you already know who has some potential who really showed what he can do with real minutes and and, and how much of an impact he, he can make um so yeah I'm, I'm with you i think that they should look at uh, extending uh Derek white and again if they don't do that that'll be something to watch is you know if october 18th comes and it passes and they haven't extended him well then they're going to uh the, the, the he'll play next season but then after that he, he becomes a restricted free agent that means that other teams now set the market on, on what they want to offer him in the summer of 2021 or the fall of in the summer of 21 <laughs> whatever it is <laughs> all right let's look at tyler zeller he didn't play a lot i think uh he got hurt um pretty early in the bubble games um he he has a non-guaranteed contract for two point four million. Uh, he did mention that that he would be on the training cap roster. Um, do you expect them to keep um, Zeller past the the preseason games next season? You know, I, I think it really depends on, I guess, kind of what they do with some of their other bigs. But mm-hmm. even if they make a trade, or even if like Perto walks in free agency, you you kind of feel like their big rotation is stacked enough that he. Even if one or two of those guys left, he really wouldn't get a whole lot of playing time. So I guess if if he understands that he's probably going to be like the third string big type player and won't get a lot of play unless they're like injured or they kind of just need a big out there when someone else is out or something like that, then then I can't imagine like it just looking at their team construction. I think a lot of things are going to happen with the bigs between now and next season. And if not a lot changes at the top, it really doesn't make sense for them to have Zeller on the roster next season. Especially, like you said, with them probably wanting to get Salmonich more time too. So, yeah, it, I, I just, I'm trying to think of where he fits on the roster and maybe he is willing to accept like a very late bench spot. I just, I don't know kind of how that makes sense without some of their other bigs in the rotation not being around next season. Okay. Yeah. Well, kind of what you said, like if, unless they lose Eubanks and, 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 um, and, and Pirtle or, or, you know, or, or Aldridge gets traded or something like that, then maybe they'd look at, at keeping, at keeping Zeller. Um, Chemezi Metu, uh, he's on a non-guaranteed contract for 1.7 million. Uh, they have until October 15th to waive him if they want to do that. If not, he's guaranteed next season for 1.7 million. I've been, you know, before the pandemic, before the shutdown of the season, I was of the of the thought that they would just wave Metu this off season, and then also even in the bubble, I feel like they're still going to wave him. And the reason why is just because like we haven't seen them, uh, Coach Pop, uh, you know, bring him into different kind of lineups. We saw that early on, like in January, Drew Eubanks was caught up, caught up in Austin, and he was still on a two way, and, and Eubanks was being used more so in the regular season as as that third big. And then also you saw that in the bubble, Pop really trusted Drew Eubanks. He liked what he saw from him, and just because it's been a few years now that Metu's been 
been on, on, on the roster, and he really hasn't had that chance. That the, the, the team hasn't brought him up to give him a chance. Now, I know that he plays at a position that's already packed with, with players uh, that, that play his position, like LaMarcus, Rudy Gay, etc., Trey Lyles, like we mentioned earlier. It's hard for him to get those minutes, but just the fact that even like in blowouts and stuff, like you, you, would, you would expect them to give him some minutes, but instead they were, they were giving all those minutes to, to, to Drew Eubanks. So I, I, for, for me, early, ever since probably... Um, like I said, since like January, I've, I've expected that they were just going to wave Matthew this offseason. What do you think about his status? Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, so it, time is weird because of the pandemic. But I guess so that would be the summer of 2018 when they drafted him and they brought him into training camp and they signed him to, if I'm remembering correctly, I might be getting some of the details wrong. But in training camp, they signed their second round draft pick to a guaranteed two-year deal and to me that was signaling like man they're seeing something in training camp that makes them think Mm -hmm. that they can turn him into a rotation player and then he barely played it all that first season and I thought okay well they signed him to a two-year guaranteed deal so maybe they understood that like they need to develop him and and they just see something in him but they just they just need to kind of have him in Austin and, and develop more before they can really bring him into the rotation and then he didn't get any playing time this year and at that point it was like okay well he he probably won't be on the team next season. Whatever they, they saw in him to give him two guaranteed years in training camp, obviously, um, didn't end up translate to giving him a rotation mm-hmm. uh, position. And kind of that was the timeline it looked like they gave themselves. And since it didn't happen in that timeline, I agree with you. It seems like uh, he, he probably uh, will be not on the roster next season. Yeah, so so we'll see what happens with Matthew. Uh, two players that we both well, we mentioned um, a few times now in this episode, and that, and uh, that's Drew Eubanks and also Quindary Weatherspoon, both two two way players. They are they are um, they are going to be restricted free agents if the Spurs offer them their qualifying offers. Now, uh, I want I don't have the exact number, but I, I think it's around two million because on one of my sheets I saw I have one point six million, but then I think that it might be a little bit uh, closer to two million. Um, so so both those players uh, around two million is what we'll say right now. Uh, they can become restricted free agents. Do you think that they'll make them both? Um, Restricted free agents, or do you think uh, only one of them, or, or what, what do you think is going to happen with both of those players? Yeah, I think they'll definitely extend the qualifying offer to Eubanks, uh-huh. um, and I think that it really doesn't make sense for them to not offer it to Weatherspoon. I mean, I guess that does tie up $2 million in cap space, and, and you really never know what the future is going to look like in terms of how much cap space they're going to have, but I think... He, he did show enough in the bubble that if he's willing to kind of be a third string guard and continue to develop, I think that makes sense for him. Um, I don't think either players are going to attract huge, uh, like suitors and restricted free agency. Mm-hmm. So I think they're probably not going to attract much more than the, um, $2 million qualifying offer, and they might even end up signing that qualifying offer if there really isn't much interest on the market. So I honestly think it makes sense to give it to both of them. I don't know what they're going to do with Weatherspoon, but I feel pretty confident they're going to offer that $2 million qualifying offer to Eubanks. I'm with you there. I think that um, for sure Eubanks is, is going to get the qualifying offer. Then, and I think just based on what I saw in the bubble in his play, uh, Weatherspoon was, was pretty interesting to watch, especially because they, uh, you know, next year is Patty Mills' last year on his contract and a guaranteed contract. So they got to figure out what they're going to do with that backup point guard spot uh, once Patty's deal expires um, after after this coming season. Um, and then, um, so so basically, basic projections look like right now, if DeRozan opts in, like we both um, agree that he's probably going to do, uh, they're going to be a, a, an over-the-cap team operating with um, access to the mid-level exception, the full mid-level exception. So that's kind of where we're, we both kind of project them. Uh, even um, 
even though we don't have the, the actual numbers on, on what the cap's actually going to be set at, that's kind of what we expected. So, so this offseason Spurs fans, if if DeRozan opts in, just expect them, unless they make some, some trades, uh, then expect them to basically bring back the majority of this team, uh, except for, you know, they got to look up what they're going to do with, with Bellinelli, with Fours, with Pirtle, et cetera, those players we've discussed. And... Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then and then have that ha- have the ability to sign a player with the mid level exception. Plus, they're bringing in whoever they draft uh, in the, with the first round pick. And like, if if they bring back Weatherspoon, Eubanks, um, uh, who's the other player, Pirtle, and also um, uh, they, the, the the new draft pick, the first round pick, I think they're up to like fourteen players in the roster and guaranteed salary. And that, so that's like with letting Metsu go, with letting. Uh, uh, Bellinelli and Forbes go, but also bringing back Trey Lyles. So, so the thing is too, like you know, how many other new players do they want to add to this roster? Because if not, the majority of this team could be back, even though a lot of players are going to be healthy and and ready to take some minutes at the same spot. Uh, and then now let's go to the last topic. I mean, the last player that we want, I want to discuss, even though he's not a free agent this coming offseason, that, and that's the player we both mentioned. That's Lamarcus Aldridge. I mean, because it is an interesting interesting situation. Um, you know, he, he's guaranteed twenty four million dollars next year. It's his final. It's the final year of his deal. Um, but you know you got to ask what happens with him because we we did see that he is we know that he's a core part of this team he's one of their focal points on offense uh, and also defensively uh, he's he's usually plays the five uh, during during the season and we saw that how successful they were um, without him in this play and like you mentioned you know the offense was able to still still operate in in the half court um, successfully even though they weren't using their usual post ups you know like I mentioned the mid range was still there but it decreased a little bit. And, and and um you know the 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 efficiency was pretty good for their mid range shots. Um, DeRozan made it well. Dejounte Murray shot it well. Uh, and then you know Lamarcus did show some growth in terms of taking a lot more threes this year, the pick and pop like you want to see him do. But again, you know he's coming. He, he's he, uh, he's coming to the last year of his deal. Uh, and then like you know they're they, like again like I said earlier, I, I don't know if Pirtle wants to be a, a backup center again if if Lamarcus is back. Uh, and and also like we mentioned, there's Lucas Simonic um, waiting to get some minutes down the road, et cetera. So. I don't know what's going to happen with Lamar. It's just just to let you know, if they do look at moving him, um, uh, he has a 15% trade kicker Spurs, Spurs, Spurs cast listeners. So so that's something to keep in mind if they were to start uh, looking at moving Aldridge. So what do you think is going to – what do you think is the situation with Aldridge right now? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, we've talked about all show. The big rotation is really cramped, and someone is going to have to leave in this offseason or someone's going to be pretty unhappy. Like if nothing – if. Yep. If they keep everyone this offseason in terms of their big rotation, you imagine that someone's getting moved at the trade deadline next season or before the trade deadline because it just it doesn't kind of make feasible sense for them to kind of have all of these players. And so now it's who do you move or who do you let walk um, in that situation? And, you know, I don't know if they decide, okay, Pirtles are starting center. We really are going with the youth movement. We're kind of shifting in a new direction. Um, and Aldridge kind of doesn't make sense for our team. He's been great, so we're going to try to to work out a trade that works good for him. Um, I just don't know if there's a team out there that's looking at that trade as a value trade for them. So are the Spurs going to have to attach an asset to trade him? I mean, I know he's still he still can can produce high level play. It's just in terms of the contract and his age. Is there going to be a team out there that's going to you know, there's probably not going to be a team out there that's going to give the Spurs all that much for him. And if anything, they might have to attach something for him. So that, that is really interesting because it definitely, if they make that trade or if they decide to try to shop him around, it's definitely a statement of we're going to go hard into the young development route. So I, I don't know. Like it, it makes sense for them to shop him, but I don't even know how that would feasibly work out. So it's one of those things where 
the idea of it makes a lot of sense to me, but then I don't really see how it happens in practice. So, you know, I think it was easy to look at the Spurs offseason and think, oh, just another Spurs offseason. But as we've talked about it, it's going to be a really interesting offseason. Mm-hmm. Even if they keep everyone, it's going to be a really interesting offseason. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I think they might just hold on to the MLA this year because it worked out so great for them last year that they might just <laughs> sit oh, yeah. on it. But like you said, uh, you know. Uh, can, you, can you explain real quick in case the Spurs cast listeners forgot? I, I, I completely forgot what they did with the MLE last year. So with the MLA first, they agreed to sign Damari Carroll to the MLE. And then uh, they ended up actually getting an agreement from Marcus Morris or Marcus Morris's agent. Oh, it's yeah, kind of about that. Uh, TBD. Wow. And so they were like, okay, well, now we have too many players on the roster. So we're going to renegotiate Damari Carroll's contract to be a three-year guaranteed contract. And we're going to trade Bertans to the Wizards so that we can make the roster space and just the space in general so we can sign um, Marcus Morris to the MLE. So they tried to sign two players with the MLE. Neither one of them worked out. And they also traded Davies Bertans in the process, who would be awesome on this team now. So the MLE was really just disastrous for them last season. And uh, if they really do have 14 players, maybe they should just uh, hold on to that and use it as an exception in the buyout market or something. Yeah, so that's a that's a good example. I mean, honestly, I forgot about the Moore situation. I thought you when you said uh, the MLE, I was like, oh yeah, they waved Carroll. I forgot they did that uh, when you just brought it up. But then I completely forgot about the Morris and Bertans trade. Of that was also part of the, the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like Colin said, I mean, it, sometimes you know, even though you have that that it's going to look like nine million dollars right now, the MLE to, to to sign a free agent, you may not want to do it because you know if, if a lot of the, the free agents are off the board already, the ones that are really impactful, we, you saw what happened with Demari Carroll where, where he was signed. Uh, to, I think it was like seven or eight million, and then he wasn't getting playing time. He wasn't happy, and then so they agreed to um, um trade to, to to waive him, and they got a buyout with him. So yeah, that's something that that they got to watch too with this MLE. And like I was like you were saying, Colin, honestly, they bring almost everybody back, and maybe they let Forbes go and 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 um and Bellinelli and and um you know Metu, etc. The the fact the fact is like a lot of these players. Once you have if everyone was present, you know it's it's going to be a problem when everyone's healthy and present because then you know who plays? People are going to have to sit. Not only that, you have all these young guys coming up, and so like. I'm not going to, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked, honestly, but I, w- I also wouldn't be surprised uh, if they start making some calls. If, if we get rumors like from Woj or Shams or et cetera, if uh, we start seeing that, that Spurs are shopping um, DeMar DeRozan, the Spurs are shopping Marcus Otter, Spurs are shopping Rudy Gay. And the reason for that is because, again, if they do want to go in this youth movement, um, they, they have all those young guys where these veterans are kind of in the way in the way of, the, of those minutes. And so like somebody like Kelton, if they really want to have him become a really uh, um, key part of their, their team next year and ex- get more responsibility, they might have to move somebody like DeRozan who, who, who plays at the same position or plays uh, a position near his on the wing. Uh, also, like we mentioned with Lucas Simonic, you know, do they want to do they want to put him into the system by next year, make him a, a core piece? Well, then they would have to look at look at moving a big like Rudy Gay or, or Lamarcus Aldridge, or even like if they resign Jakob Pertle. So there is a lot of like you said, it's it's going to be a very interesting offseason to watch. We don't exactly know what they're going to do, and then also it depends on the money. You know, we don't we got to wait till the NBA tells us. Um, how much what the cap's going to be set at? And we won't figure that out probably till the finals ends because that's when the TV revenue finally gets all you know all crunched together in the numbers and they figure out how much money they were able to uh, to, to still keep uh, based on this restart uh, after losing so much money with, with no ticket attendance. So we'll kind of see what happens. Uh, I, I know Spurscast listeners, this is a little bit longer than our usual episodes, but like I said, it, it was it was one that we really wanted to get dive into this off season approach for the Spurs, and obviously, you know, we'll continue to keep you all updated uh, with any kind of changes um, throughout throughout the future Spurscast episodes. So now that we're getting toward the end here. Uh, I do want to um, uh, um, um, 
Ask you all to visit ProjectSpurs.com. We have, we have a lot going on over there. Uh, the latest Spurs Takeover postgame show is posted um, where it has Joe Garcia. Uh, he's joined by Vic, Victoria Virial and Grajeda and also uh, Jonas Clark. They were on there um, for, for the postgame show after the Spurs uh, lost the Jazz. Steven Anderson, he kept you. Um, he kept up his analysis with all the Spurs bubble games. So if you want to check out how they did it in those games, go, go read Steven's pieces. Um, Benjamin Bornstein had an interesting piece today called um, Redrafting the Spurs 90s Edition Part 1. So Ben's been doing these, these different series pieces and they've been really good. Uh, so check out Ben's work. Uh, like I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, uh, Fernando Garcia has a really good piece that I, that I recommend called Spurs Basketball Trends in Bubble, where he, look, where he looked at some of the trends that, that we were seeing from the Spurs team uh, in, in the bubble. And then also, Colin, you had a piece, um, I think it was last week, called Patty Mills the Professional. And, and Patty didn't play a lot in these games. However, when he did play, he was ready, like ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that piece, what it's about? Yeah, so you know, I was watching just because and I know this is probably true for everyone these games were coming on at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. and like just in the middle of the day and it was just like you know it was hard to keep up with them all so I was like I, I really want to write a piece I want to kind of find a storyline that's interesting to me and so I was, I was watching the first four games and the thing that really stuck out was like man it Patty didn't play in any of the the scrimmage games and it looked like he might not play in any of the bubble games but they had to make him active because of some injuries Mm-hmm. And like he comes in and just is instantly on fire on offense. And I just I I don't know if there's many other players who would I mean he's practically in the bubble he was practically a coach. Like he he basically was a coach who was willing to come in and shoot three-pointers when they needed him to. And it's just it was one of those things where I he he definitely is one of those all teammate level guys and he can come in and he had this huge offensive uh, impact when he was on the court, but then when he wasn't playing, he wasn't sulking. He was using that time to help develop the young guys. So he, he's definitely very much a, a Spurs guy and and acting like I said, like a coach. But when he's called on to play, he's also ready to do so. So I, I just remember that was maybe the most impressive thing of the first four games to me, and uh, it, it was definitely cool to see. Yeah, for sure. So make sure you check out that piece by Colin. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Patty was it, it, after that game, that first game that he played. Um, you know, we asked him like, you know, you haven't played a game since March. Like, how how did you just like? Because like he just got in there like right away. He hit a corner three. Like it was so fast. He's like he's like it's just like riding a bike. So like for Patty, it was just like he was so casual. Like how you mm-hmm. mentioned, like he's just like. Oh, oh, I got to play after not playing in months. Okay, cool. And he just gets in and just does <laughs> does his job. And so, yeah, like you mentioned, the professional was a really good, great word to describe him uh, and how he approached this this bubble. And he continued to do that. You know, once they got some players healthy, he went back to sitting on the bench and just being on the active roster, but but not playing. But you know, helping to uh, mentor the young guys, um, being like like you said, an assistant coach there uh, during the bubble. So, so yeah, Patty um, was great there for for the team, uh, even though he wasn't playing as much. Um, thank, thanks again to Colin for joining me here on Spurs on the Spurs cast. Uh, thanks also to Michael DeLeon for producing this episode. From all of us at Project Spurs, stay safe and have a great day. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. 
Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.